Welcome to BSD Talk number 235. It's Monday, November 18, 2013. This episode is brought to you by the ID utility, which returns a user identity. It first appeared in 4.4 BSD. Okay, we're here at VBSDCon mm-hmm. in Virginia, and another interview here, this time with Alan Jude from Scale Engine, but also from TechSnap, the TechSnap podcast. And also, a new podcast that's come out in the past, I guess, month, is it? Uh, be almost two months now. Okay, almost two months now, which is the BSD Now podcast. Yeah. So, before we get into the nitty-gritty of content delivery networks, yes. why don't we talk a little bit about TechSnap and the yeah. whole internet broadcasting and the new BSD Now podcast? I suppose. Uh, so, TechSnap uh, started uh, 134 weeks ago. <laughs> Because we do an episode every Thursday, and we've actually never missed one yet. Mm. Um, and it's basically a podcast kind of targeted at sysadmins and also students and so on that want to get into that field. Uh, so we mostly take a beginner approach, but uh, a lot of what it consists of is taking news stories, uh, especially with an eye towards security, so malware and, and, and servers being compromised and things like that, and kind of break down the story and explain why this matters to you. And uh, I think one of the greatest examples of that was uh, this one security researcher, you know, he finished school, wasn't sure what to do with his life, and he bought a bunch of uh, used SCADA equipment off eBay and, you know, was reverse engineering the firmware and and found all these holes. When you say SCADA, you mean control hardware uh, for, like, power plants? Yeah, industrial system control software. Uh, And he found all these vulnerabilities, and he published them and ended up getting a job at a research firm and so on. But when we broke down and explained why this is a big deal, because you know people can turn off the water pumps at a nuclear power plant or or open the floodgates of a, a dam or whatever, uh, and we kind of explained it so simple. And we actually got an email from him being like, "Thank you for your explanation, because now I know how to explain to my family why what am I doing is not just crazy computer mumbo jumbo." Yeah, I think right. it was it during the Slammer virus. A bunch of ATM networks went down, not because they were running Windows, but because the networks that were supposed to be physically separate weren't. actually weren't. And they yeah. discovered, you know, so like even these power plant control yeah. networks and SCADA equipment is supposed to be physically separate often. Wasn't, a, a yeah. lazy sysadmin in order yeah, to make or, things convenient. Uh, the other case we saw was, uh, I think it was a prison in Washington State, had this Windows XP computer with the control software for the door, the cell doors. And it was isolated from the internet. But the security guards ran a Cat5 cable so they could Facebook on the computer. Mm-hmm. And then it got compromised and the doors start opening and closing by themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the show is basically news and kind of breaking down what's happened in the security and malware and things like that. And then we have a feedback segment where users write in questions. Uh, this is where the, the FreeBSD and the, the server admin stuff often comes, you know, I'm trying to build this server, I'm trying to replace this, and, uh, you know, whatever tech problem, and we kind of give ideas of how you might solve that. And uh, we also did some segments on, you know, how to build a home server or a router or whatever. 
<laughs> and uh, and then at the end we have a, a roundup segment. It's like these are all the links that we found, uh, but didn't have time to write something about. <laughs> and so it's you know if you want a further reading, and we have very copious show notes on the website along with the episode that you can you know find all the sources where we got all the information and go deeper. Yeah, I used to do in BSD Talks some tutorial podcasts. And it was a lot of preparation. Yeah. Uh, so with BSD Now, the new show specifically focused on the free net open BSDs. Uh, originally, uh, I'd been asked to do a show a couple of times by audience from TextNet because I would, or, or even uh, for a short time, I co-hosted the Linux Action Show and Which tried to make it a little, yeah, the same group, same podcasting network, yeah. uh, and I tried to make it a little more agnostic and and try to include BSD in it. And they were like, that should be a separate show. <laughs> I'm like, at first I thought there wouldn't be enough content about the BSDs to make a show every week. Hmm. Um, and then, it, you know, I got more involved with BSD and, and coming to the conferences and, and actually writing docs and stuff. And I realized there was actually quite a bit going on. But then I was like, well, I don't really have time either. But anyway, the next time someone... Uh, proposed the idea, I'm like, if someone else could do a lot of the writing and the, the prep work, because, you know, I have a day job and I'm already spending all day every Thursday doing TechSnap, uh, and so someone volunteered, and, and so we have TJ who writes a lot of the, the almost all of the show notes and most of the tutorials, uh, and then I was trying to find a host, and I asked you first, actually, and you were busy, and, and we asked around a bit, and actually... Found Chris Moore of uh, PCBSD uh, was kind enough to make the time out of his week every week and his extremely busy schedule because on top of all the BSD conferences he goes to a lot of Linux ones to promote PCBSD uh, and he has three or four kids mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so anyway we do the show uh, every week and uh, with that we start with uh, some news items from you know what just got committed to OpenBSD or, or what the latest thing in NetBSD was and what, so on and then we have uh, an interview every week, uh, and then a tutorial, how to do something, and then uh, a roundup type thing. With here's some other stuff we also found, but didn't have time to go into more detail. And this is video. Yes, and not, it's video. Yep, and not just from your home, but sometimes you'll yeah. at the conferences you'll gather some. Yeah, video we haven't got any at VBSDCon so far, but at uh, EuroBSDCon in Malta about about a month ago, we recorded seven or eight interviews. Uh, most of which we've used now, but not all of which. Mm -hmm. And then we also do a bunch over Skype yeah. with video usually. And I think this rolls nicely into uh, probably the next part of this, which yeah. is video yes. takes a lot of bandwidth. Yes. And if you try and host it at your home cable connection, you're going to crush your connection. And so you need usually a content yeah. delivery network. Well, yeah, even if you had a dedicated server, mm -hmm. uh, you could still crush it easily. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do a couple of different things for that uh, so we have servers uh, the scale engine CDN now is in 30 different data centers in 10 countries uh, and we have a we use this software called GDNSD it's a global server load balancer it was actually originally written by a developer at Logitech to geographically distribute uh, their driver downloads and the idea is that it uses a GeoIP database to look at, you know, where's this DNS request coming from, 
And based on that, you can change the results. So when someone tries to go to download an episode of the show, we look at where they're coming from and send them to a server near there. Uh, but then it got more functionality. There's uh, the external monitoring plugins. So you can be like, you know, check the health of this server. Or we actually use SNMP to pull the network card. You know, if the server's doing more than 70% of its network link, then we consider it down and write the user to the second closest server, and so on and so on. And then it gets more complicated when you're doing live video. With uh, regular, when people downloading over HTTP, it's not that big a deal when you get some contention, right? If you have a 100 megabit link and 100 people trying to download at two megabits each, they'll each get about a megabit, or depending on latency, but you know, when you hit your link capacity, you just slow everybody's download down, and it still works. Uh, when you're doing live streaming, you know, the stream bit rate of one megabit per second or whatever, if somebody can't download at least that much, then the video pauses and buffers and or misses some of the stuff. And so with live, we have to ensure there's never, ever any contention. So we have to be very conservative about how much traffic we route to each server. And that's why you know, we usually don't go over 60 or 70% of the capacity of the link, partly because the DNS load balancer, you know, because DNS has a TTL, it can take five or 10 minutes before new users stop getting sent to that server. Uh, and you know, sometimes there's a couple ISPs that don't respect the DNS TTL. They just want to cache it as long as they can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially satellite or anything mm -hmm. like that. And, and so we can't even trust that we'll actually stop sending new people there completely. And so we have to make sure we can stop sending too much traffic to any server so it doesn't hit its link capacity because if it does, it doesn't ruin the experience of any people trying to connect. It ruins the experience of everybody, even the people. It was working fine, and all of a sudden it just goes to crap because there's this contention. So if I, if I were a CDN customer, mm -hmm. essentially what, would, what I would be doing is making your DNS servers authoritative for my zone and also shipping you my content that you would distribute to your servers? That depends. Uh, for a website with our edge caching system, you can usually what you would do is, is keep your existing web server if you want or whatever. Uh, and we would cache at the edge and you know when there's cache miss, we call back to your server and, and pull a copy up and distribute it from there. So you know things like images we can cache for a long time. And then, you know, sometimes the HTML pages will only do for five minutes, or we can do longer, and you can install a, like a WordPress plugin that will purge the content when you update or edit a post so that it shows up quicker. Uh, for things like the podcast, where it's a download, you FTP it to one of our storage servers, or SFTP, or rsync, or whatever you want to do. Uh, and then we actually have a cache system where if when the edge doesn't have it, it'll come and pull it. Mm -hmm. Or some of the stuff we actually pre-stage out to the edge using uh, ZFS replication. Uh, that's what we do for the PCBSD CDN. Uh, we has the, the ISOs and the, um, the PackageNG repos for them. Uh, and the PackageNG repos were kind of tricky because all the files have to be consistent. Like there's a, a repo.txz file that explains all the files that are in the directory. So if you update that first, then it'll point to files that don't exist yet. 
Uh, and there's a second file that's uh, the SHA-256 digest of all the files, and that's cryptographically signed. So if you update that after you upload the files or before, then the hash doesn't match, and you reject the package. So we have to have all those files be either what they were before or what they were after the update. It can never have a mixed... If only there were a file system that could send snapshots that were atomic over the network. Well, you can, but <laughs> you'd have to... Uh, so what we did for that, and also to reduce the delay, we need because uh, Chris is uploading from a build server at his house, so we can only upload at like mm -hmm. 5 megabits a second. So we use rsync with the delayed update option, so it copies all the new files into a temporary directory. And then once every single file is uploaded, it just does atomic renames into mm -hmm. place. Uh, so we're replicating that the whole t uh, every 15 minutes, we're replicating what is uploaded so far. Uh, but that's the original files haven't changed. All we're doing is loading into this hidden directory. And then, so once he finishes uploading, the next 15 minute snapshot drops all those files in place, and all the edges have it 15 minutes after he's done uploading it. If we did it uh, just using ZFS, he would have to upload all the files, and then when it was done, create a new snapshot, and that would then start replicating to all the servers. Uh, and on top of taking longer, it would create a bigger spike in the traffic. Because all of our servers are gigabit, what he can upload in, in, in 15 minutes from his house, we can replicate in 30 seconds. <laughs> so with the server staggered, we're not actually creating a lot of traffic out of that master server. As a CDN, you must have a point of presence all over the world to be yeah. useful. Yeah, so uh, very heavy all over the US and uh, quite a bit in Europe as well. And yes, 30 data centers in 10 different countries including four different data centers just in uh, uh, the Netherlands because it's such a big hub for, you know, has the best routes to almost everywhere. Does that mean you have to have staff in all of these places? No. Uh, we do a lot of remote management using, uh, like, IPMI, uh, so that generally what we have to do is VPN to uh, an endpoint at the ISP, and then we connect over a secure network to an out-of-band management system, uh, with the super mic, almost, uh, the thing we found interesting was that of those 30 different data centers where we're, most of the time we're renting the servers because, you know, if a power supply or a hard drive fails, if it's rented, they fix it for you. And it's not a big pain. It's, if we did co-locations all those places, we'd have, like, one-year contracts instead of 30-day contracts, and we'd have to, like, maintain our own spares, and it'd just be a nightmare. Uh, so we can connect over the IPMI, mount an ISO image, from my desktop in Hamilton, <laughs> from Canada, on a server in Amsterdam, and boot off of it, install the OS, hmm. and and do other things like turn it off and on, and or even just get console access when the machine is just unusable. And all these servers you have out there, are these uh, an image, a custom image, or are you using something like Puppet? Or? Yeah, so we do a stock FreeBSD 9.2 install, and then. Uh, we have our own package repo where we've compiled, you know, Nginx and Varnish and all the stuff we need with custom uh, compile time options. And then uh, we bootstrap Puppet off our own repo, and then or bootstrap PKG off our own repo, and then uh, install Puppet. And when Puppet starts, it hits our Puppet master. We sign the key. It pulls down a package config and then installs the hundred and so packages we use. Uh, and the entire, from the time we start Puppet to when the server's ready to be in production, 
there's about seven or eight minutes and a good chunk of that is easy jail installing a second copy of freebsd on the zfs pool and extracting an extra copy of ports which i don't know why we do ports anymore because we never compile ports by hand in the jails anymore because we have our own package repo so i could probably cut that down <laughs> uh but uh, when I gave the presentation at BSD CAN in the spring of this year about how we did Puppet and mostly um, optimizations we made in our Nginx config to go around Puppet in places, uh, for our video streaming, we have a, this big Java server app we use. And so we have that packaged up as a jail in a tar, and it pulls that down via Puppet and, and deploys it using EasyJail. Uh, and Delivering a 500 megabyte file through the Ruby code is really inefficient. Uh, whereas Nginx, you can just serve it, but that's not necessarily secure. So we have we taught Nginx about Puppet's certificate authority, and say only allow somebody to download this file if they present a client certificate signed by this Puppet CA, and that way only nodes which we've activated are allowed to pull down the files out of our secure file store. But when they do pull down files, it's not through Puppet. It's just Nginx sending it directly. And that made a big difference, performance-wise. But when I did the presentation, we were still using port install, uh, which is part of uh, port upgrade, uh, to basically each edge built all the ports, or all the packages it needed from ports uh, when it came up. And it took about 45 minutes to build everything we needed on you know modern E3 quad-core machines. Uh, Switching to PackageNG, it now takes seven minutes, and like half of that time is easy jail. And I could probably cut two minutes out of that just by not doing a port stream in the easy jails. Yeah, I, uh, anytime I want to touch PackageNG, as soon as I get frustrated, I bail. And one of these days, I just need to, you know, yeah. cut and just force myself to use it. Uh, the only frustrating experience I had was I took a box that the ports hadn't been updated in like a year. Uh, mostly because it was it had PHP 5.3 installed when that port was called PHP 5, but now PHP 5 pointed to 5.4, and my ports were uh, PHP 5.3, but I wanted to keep 5.3. So I would have had to try to explain to port upgrade or something what that was. Uh, and instead, what I did is took my list of packages, narrowed it down a little bit, threw it in Poudrier, and built a new package set, and then did package to ng and converted the machine. And other than having to fight with the version change in Perl, which required me to use a little package set thing and change the origin on all the packages, so it, instead of using Perl 5.10, it used 5.14. And the same thing for the PHP ports, update them from thinking that they wanted to depend on PHP 5-XML to be PHP 5.3-XML, so they would pull in the right dependency and not try to install 5.3 and 5.4 at the same time and create a conflict. Uh, I actually upgraded all those quite easily. I was surprised at how easy it was compared to um, uh, using port upgrade. And you mentioned the word Poudrier, which yes. is your own... No, that's uh, Baptiste's. It's, it's, the it's, it's your own local... Re it lets yeah. you create your own... Repo. Yeah, so... Uh, what Poudrier is, is the replacement for the old Tinderbox. It's uh, a little shell script, well not that little, but a, a shell script that you provide a list of packages or you can do the entire port street, which is what the FreeBSD project does, 
uh, and it builds them all. Uh, but the way Tinderbox used to work is it would take this, you know, 24,000 ports and try to divide them up and assign them to different machines. But they found it's actually faster with modern hardware to just spin up one jail for each CPU on the system and then build the packages, you know, with the, just the one job at a time instead of trying to do concurrency. So, you know, you give it a list of packages and it's compiling, pi compiling 24 of them at a time. Most of the time, not all the time, because dependencies, you know, you get a blocker, you know, everything depends on get text, so you have to wait for get text to finish, and then mm -hmm. 24 things can start going. Uh, but uh, with that, on a 24 core machine with like 96 gigs of RAM, uh, compiling in tempfs to save disk IO, they can compile the entire FreeBSD ports tree, all 24,000 apps, including LibreOffice in like 24 languages and and like four versions of Firefox and all of that in like 14 hours on one machine. Wow. And so compiling everything I need for an edge server takes like 45 minutes or less. You're obviously using FreeBSD a lot yes. in this. Was there was this something where you were already using FreeBSD in your life? Or um, were these some problems that you were trying to solve in other ways and then FreeBSD ended up being really the only solution for you? Uh, when I, I guess, how long is it? More than 10 years ago, when uh, I was getting more and more into IRC, I wanted to learn how to run my own IRC server. And so I was told that to do that, you need to rent a shell account. And so I found a place and rented it, and they happened to be running FreeBSD. And uh, so that was the f my first exposure to any kind of Unix or Linux or anything. Uh, and I kind of learned it, and then I used a bit of Linux here and there. Installed uh, EggDrop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was doing IRCD, but yeah, yeah uh, same kind of thing. And then after a couple of years, I felt fairly comfortable with it, and I decided that I could do a better job at running the shell hosting company mm -hmm. than the guy I was using. Uh, and so I decided to start my own, and then it was the choice of OS. And it was like, you know, from just some reading, it was like, you use FreeBSD, because if you run Linux, you'll get rooted. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't really based on anything other than some opinions people had on IRC. Uh, so I started with a FreeBSD 4.0 or 4.1, I think, and uh, I kind of learned it from wanting to do things and the fact that it had the best documentation, things like uh, FreeBSD Diary and the handbook, and I've used it for everything I could ever since. Uh, the only Linux I've ever actually done with was the bit I had to learn in school. And I was lucky. The college I went to, uh, the intro to Unix course was Red Hat, but the Unix Admin 2 and Unix Security courses were FreeBSD and NetBSD. Uh, and so even in school, you know, I was already very familiar with FreeBSD, but that got my first exposure to NetBSD. And uh, the bit of exposure I had to Linux was mostly the more simple stuff, and it was always like, well, that's much easier to do on FreeBSD. <laughs> and so, yeah, when it came time to build a CDN, uh, the couple of servers we already had were FreeBSD, and we would probably never use Linux. Uh, so, you know, my business partner was kind of familiar with uh, NetBSD, and that's what he had used before. But I guess my experience with FreeBSD kind of outweighed his bit with NetBSD, and so that's what we used. And now we have. 80 FreeBSD machines, and uh, we probably never considered using anything else. 
Are there any features of the upcoming releases that you're looking forward to releasing uh, into your CDN? Going to FreeBSD 9.2 just recently, getting us uh, ZFS version 5000 was a big deal for us. Uh, especially the LZ4 compression a bit, but mostly better performance when the pool gets kind of full. Uh, especially with video, we're, we have four storage arrays currently holding 50 or 60 terabytes of data. Uh, so being able to use more of that without the performance going out the window was, was very useful. But also there was a lot of uh, quality of life improvements with ZFS, like all the command lines now support uh, no-op versions. And, and you know when you want to go and delete a snapshot, you can say no-op for both, and it'll be like, deleting this snapshot will save this much space. It's like, well, yes, I would have loved to have known that before. <laughs> and all those features were only in the newest version, so we were very happy to grab that. And with that, it let me improve some of our tools, like the thing we use for ZFS replication. Before you do a ZFS send, on especially an incremental, you can do that no up verbose option again, and it'll tell you how about how big that send's going to be. So I scripted that, so we pull that number out and use it to make a progress bar. So I can actually tell, all right, this send is going to be 100 gigs and, or 50 gigs or whatever, and I can tell how much I've done so far, and so I actually know from the progress bar, oh, it'll be done in two hours. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas before, it, was, it would start, and you, wouldn't, you didn't know how big it was, how fast it was going, or if it was ever going to finish. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I guess we should get back to the conference here. Yes. But, uh, when's the, I guess it's Wednesday night? Yeah, so the uh, BSD Now airs live at 2 p.m. Eastern, which is 1800 UTC on Wednesdays, and comes up for download usually Friday afternoons. Uh, and then TechSnap is live 4 p.m., which is 2000 UTC on Thursdays, and comes out usually Thursday night. All right, well, we'll keep our eyes open for the next ones. and. You still have five nights in which to produce five more video podcasts, so we're looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. Right. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 235.